Welcome. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Happy Friday. We made it. It's the weekend. It's going to be awesome. Today's show is going to be awesome. Delano Squire, Steve Kim here with us. And listen, I was given a layup. I, I, I was given a layup. I mean, you wonder why I got this big smile on my face. It's because Colin Kaepernick opened his mouth again. How easy could this show be for me? It's like, like they put it on a tee for me. I don't have to do any work. It, it's, it's a topic custom made for me. I've been a longtime uh, Colin Kaepernick critic, and he is exposing himself as one of the worst human beings in the history of America. And I say that in all seriousness. He's not beyond redemption. But this is a tragic, sad, confused, mean-spirited human being. This is no hero. This is no one that's interested in social justice. This is an idiot who is mean-spirited, ungrateful, and a blight on the sports world, and anybody that defended this guy should be embarrassed. Surely you've heard by now that Colin Kaepernick took a dump on his adoptive parents. I can't think of anything lower than his pursuit of fame and money would take him to this depth, to be this low, to call your parents problematic and insinuate and flat out claim that they raised you in a racist manner. I'm, let's play the clip of Colin Kaepernick being interviewed by, it looked to me like another African American, but I'm not a thousand percent sure, but he's got some comic book out about his life and he sat down with uh, a female reporter uh, with another female that helped him write this uh, sitting next to him. He got that feminine energy just flowing everywhere. Uh, let's listen to Colin Kaepernick take a dump on the parents, the Kaepernick parents that raised him. It's his true high school coming of age story, his journey embracing his blackness, despite resistance from many, including his white adoptive parents. I know my parents loved me, but there were still very problematic things that I went through. I think it was important to show that, no, this can happen in your own home and how we move forward collectively while addressing the racism that is being perpetuated. He took cues from his icon, basketball star Allen Iverson, who he said wore his blackness like a suit of armor. And teenage Kaepernick wanted cornrows to match. He's getting what roles, his mom asked? Oh, your hair's not professional. Oh, you look like a little thug. Your mom become. said that to you. Yeah. And those become spaces where it's like, okay, how do I navigate this situation now? But it also is informed why I have my hair long today. Part of the goal in telling the story is no, take pride in your blackness, take pride in your culture. My hope is young people and readers walk away and they seize their power. When y'all are in that position, you have the opportunity to change things. <clears throat> He's gonna take me to a level of transparency today that could get me in trouble, 
could trigger someone watching, could paint a bad image of me, but I just need people to hear me out in context and just be patient with me or, or show me some grace and mercy if I say something that doesn't quite land right. But anybody that knows me knows I have no problem with interracial dating. Anybody that knows me knows I was very capable of being 50% of a African-American child. But when I look at Colin Kaepernick and what's going on with these African-Americans, including Barack Obama, all the way down, I, just, I, I thank God that it, 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 it didn't happen because I don't, I would be devastated if my kids were having the kind of identity issues that I consistently see from African-American kids. And if anybody's watching this who is married in an interracial marriage or whatever, I am not attacking you at all. I wish the best for your kids. I hope that you have equipped them to, to, to see themselves beyond their skin color, see themselves as image bearers of God. But this would have been my worst nightmare if I had a kid and I hadn't raised them properly so that they wouldn't spin off into this racial idolatry world that Kaepernick and so many African-American kids seem to be caught up in. Kaepernick and this reporter, who appears to be African-American to me as well, talking about embracing his blackness. What other group does this? Is there another group that sits on television talking about, I had to embrace my brownness. I had to embrace my yellowness. I had to embrace my whiteness. If white people were on TV talking about, I had to embrace my whiteness, they would be run off and called every racist in the book. They would be called problematic themselves. And then if you're so stupid as to think cornrows makes you black, whatever black is, other than a skin color. The only thing that can make you black is the color of your skin. That's the only qualification. For Colin Kaepernick to have so little self-awareness, life experience, lack of a broader understanding. I had two black parents and my father questioned everything about me. I don't like the clothes you're wearing. Why'd you get an earring? Why are you doing this or that? If I had gotten cornrows, my father probably would have smacked me on sight and would have been like, what are you doing? You think you went to college to come out and dress like some thug straight out of prison? That's what parents do. They don't want you all dressed up looking like you just got out of Rawway State Prison. 
black parents, white parents, parents, responsible parents, regardless of color, ask those types of questions and question everything about their kids. If I guarantee you, if the parents, if they had a white kid and they came home looking like a hippie with long hair, they would you look like a hippie and a fool. That doesn't look professional. That's what parents do. But Kaepernick is so foolish and stupid, he thinks that Tats and Cornrows and Allen Iverson wrote the book on being black. To some degree, I have sympathy for Colin Kaepernick, but not this. Not, not this. When your black daddy that you never knew, allegedly black daddy, that you never knew, you look Middle Eastern to me, your white mama, they gave you up. And these two people come rescue you, put you in a good home, bend over backwards to support your athletic career, your academic career and everything. And you wanna sit down and do interviews and talk about problematic and racism? You have so little understanding of parenting. You think I couldn't sit here and talk about the mistakes my parents made? Every parent makes mistakes. And I'm not even saying your parents made mistakes, but every parent makes mistakes. But most people, particularly in their 30s, Hell, by the time they're teenagers, they're wise enough to go, oh, Lord, have mercy. Was my parents good to me? Yeah, they didn't do everything right, but oh, my God, what a blessing. Jimmy Joe next door don't even know his daddy. Felicia down the street, her mama strung out on drugs. And my parents bent over backwards for me and supported me in every way fashionable. My father made some mistakes, but my God, the sacrifices he made, the sacrifices my mother made. And I'm going to sit up and question and clown them to sell some comic books and to be popular. This man is sick. And anybody that can't see it is sick, too. This is. The lack of gratitude, it's so pervasive. And, And yes, I'm going to go all the way here. These young people that have no gratitude for being Americans and for being born here and appreciate the people, white and black, who sacrificed so that we could live in the land of the free, the home of the brave, the land with all this opportunity. There's no gratitude for it. And all everybody wants to do is second guess and publicly question everything and act like they are the supreme beings with all the answers. And if we had been the founding fathers, if we had been this or that, oh, how much better this country would be. It's a joke. You have no gratitude. 
And it's because you have no connection to God. Because when you have a connection to God, you're overwhelmed with gratitude. You know how flawed you are. And so you don't go on TV and take a dump on mama and daddy. Now, if mama and daddy had truly mistreated you, if they didn't feed you because they blew money on gambling and booze and whores and drugs, I get it. But your complaint is your mama complained because you had cornrows. Me and my daddy would have gotten a knockdown drag out fight if I tried to put some cornrows on my head. We would have got in a fight. Trust me. He would have thrown hands at me. That's what parents do that care about their kids. This story is sickening. I've never liked Colin Kaepernick. Uh, let me let me be accurate. When he was just a football player, I did like Colin. I actually loved him. He was my favorite player. But once he started this kneeling stuff and couldn't defend it, and once he exposed himself as mute Muhammad Ali, controlled by that woman of his, I've never liked Colin Kaepernick. And I feel so justified in not liking him right now. Any of you that had good parents who, and trust me, your parents made mistakes, but getting on TV and chit-chatting with some woman you don't know about the mistakes that you think they made and they're racist and this was problematic and you making a cartoon book about it? You're that thirsty? You're that unappreciative? You're sick, man. Absolutely sick. And all the people gassing you up, they're sick. Now, I'm not a parent. And that's why <clears throat> first person we're going to bring in is Delano, because he is a parent. And, and he was raised by good parents. Delano, I, I, I'm... I'm this is the bridge too far for me with with mm -hmm. with Colin. There's been many things, but I, I just can't believe this guy would do this to these people. I know they're adopted parents, but I, I they complained about cornrows, mm -hmm. and and in the movie he put out, the, the, I think one of them complained about uh, the roundaway girl he was trying to take to some dance or whatever. I don't know if I've ever dated anybody my parents didn't second guess and didn't have a complaint about. That's what parents do. Right. I, I just, th this seems crazy to me. It, it's sickening to me. It, it, I, I can't stand Colin Kaepernick. I, I just can't. Uh, your thoughts? J Jason, I'm right there with you. Uh, I think his behavior is contemptible. I think it's despicable. I think it reveals a lack of character. But unfortunately, it's right on brand because this is what Marxists do, right? They, they think that a person's ultimate loyalty should be to the ideology and to the state 
and and I guess to to one's um, comrades, and that's why they they attack religion, um, they attack the family, they try to cut people away from the family. They say, oh, they the family's not loyal to to you know big brother to the state, so you should pull back from them, right? They don't they don't support you. They're not good comrades. They're not good allies. So you should pull back from them. And I and I think what he's doing, and I said this on Twitter, you know, it's it's it is disgusting. And I and I hope because now Colin Kaepernick is a father. And I pray that his children extend more grace to him than he extends to, to his parents. Because as I said, what he what he is doing is completely despicable. And as a and as a Christian, I understand that one of the Ten Commandments is to honor your mother and your father so that your days will be long in the land. And the, the Marxist worldview is one which will shorten your days. Because even if you live a long time, your life will never be full. Because when you have these sort of purity tests, you're going to run off everybody that's ever cared about you. Your mom, your dad, your, your, your siblings, your extended family, and you're going to be surrounded by comrades. But as you said, I think yesterday, you know, um, on, on the show, for, to some of those comrades, you're just a useful idiot. So once you, you, you know, fulfill your purpose in their agenda, you're gone. And, and we saw this with BLM. And honestly, the, 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 the particularly Patrice Cullors and Alicia Garza, they both got family issues. Alicia Garza complained that her stepdad, a man that she described as, as a white Jewish man, showed her what, uh, what it's like to deal with sort of patriarchy and power. Because he ran a business and he would tell her, um, go bring me some coffee. That was her complaint. Her dad, who provided for her and, her and her black mom, told, I want you to bring me coffee. Now, she said, you know, he cared for me. But, uh, you know, that's why I had to learn to, you know, I, I wanted to exert my own power as a black woman. And I said, we are going through this this spasm, this racial justice spasm, because this woman has unresolved issues with with her stepfather. And it's the same thing with Kaepernick. It's the same thing with a lot of these people. They have deep, deep identity issues, and they they have not found a way to deal with them, and they're forcing all of us to be on the therapist couch with them, and and we are we are thinking that they're fighting f- for race and justice, but they are just trying to work through these issues. And I, they, let me let me let me make a, an honest admission to the audience. I know exactly where Colin Kaepernick is coming from, right? When I was 18 years old, ready to go off to college, my dad, who's very conservative in terms of his dress, his appearance, his speech, wanted me to get a haircut. Now, like a lot of black boys in my age growing up in the 90s, I like to grow my hair out. And I grew it out every summer. But then when I went to school in the fall, I would get it cut. I would wear like a low Caesar or a low ball fade. So I'm going off to college. I didn't want to get it cut. I went to the barber. I said, take it off a little bit, keep most of the hair. My dad said, I don't like it. I don't, I don't want you to represent our family this way when you go, when you leave the house. And I got upset. And I said some things I shouldn't have said. And one of my, my best friends, he'll know this. And I, I may have extended my hand and, and said, this sounds like a socialistic type of perspective. And, and we had a big argument. Now, ultimately, I went back to the barber and I got my hair cut. Fast forward, I let it grow out because again, I, I was young and rebellious. 
end of the school year comes, not only did I have long hair, but I also added an earring, a fake cubic zirconia. I went down to Lazarus. I went downtown Pittsburgh, got me a little, you know, on, on, on the proper side. And I come home and my pops, he was he was done with me. And his thing was like, look, if you want to do which, all this stuff, you could pay for college on your own. And and I got cut off financially. Um, I, I went had to get my hair cut and then I left home. And for the next four years, me and my dad spoke on the phone one time. And I almost never came. I spent every single p- semester from the age of 18 to 22 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And we had a rift, I'd say until I was about 23 years old. And I didn't understand it and all my friends were like, just cut your hair, just cut your hair. And I was like, no, I'm not doing it. And eventually what happened is I cut it when I I was ready. Um, It it put a strain on my parents' relationship. And I, I harbored some feelings towards him for a long time. But here's what happened, Jason. Eventually, when I when I left home again and I moved away and I was going to a church and the pastor was talking about resolving issues with your parents or people, loved ones. And I wrote my dad a note and I told him I appreciate him. And I understand that he always did what he thought was best for me. And I sent it home and my mom said he read it and, and he was grateful for it. And now me and my dad have a, a, a much, much better relationship. Sometimes we still disagree on stuff. But, I, but the thing is, I respect him and I honor him. And even in my telling of this story, I, I don't want to do anything to, to tarnish him, his perspective or his reputation because he's my father. And now I'm a father and I would want my children to be respectful and obedient and to honor me because eventually, Lord willing, they're going to have children. And I understand why God told the children of Israel to honor their mother and their father. Because if you hate the people who created you, who else won't you hate? And, and, and what I see Colin Kaepernick doing is working through some of these issues because he probably feels abandoned, which he was by his biological parents. And he never felt like he quite fit in, which he probably didn't given where he grew up. And, and he's pulling in these superficial notions of, of his ethnicity. Allen Iverson, cornrows, tattoos. That's, that's what it means to be black. I'm surprised he didn't say he went, he only, he exclusively wore Jordans. But he he is trying to find his identity. And to your point, and I, I and I love the way you said it, as a as a as a believer, I understand my first, first and foremost, that my identity is in Christ. And the Bible talks about even if your mother and your father forsake you, God will never leave you. But but the Marxist hates God. And, and, and he, he lifts himself up as, as an om, omnipotent and omnipresent force. And that's why we see Colin Kaepernick going through this, this identity spasm that he's going through right now. So I, I, I pray for the brother. I honestly do. I hope he will repent and turn from his, his ways and he will come to find you know, his identity in Christ. Because what he's doing right now, nobody will want to be around him. I certainly wouldn't. And I wouldn't want this type of person to be my friend. I sit there and th- he's a he's a father now, and, and and I can't. He's going to raise this kid in such an inappropriate, ineffective way. If if he's now in his thirties and still thinking 
his hairstyle mm. is central to his identity. That tattoos central to his identity. You can't pass. These aren't values to pass on to a kid that are going to mm. take them anywhere. This is crazy. And people mm. can't see it. And I see so many kids caught up in this. Delano, stick with me. I, I just want to take care of a slight bit of business. One, I want to tell you guys that are watching over YouTube, hit the likes, hit the comments. This show is worthy of 10,000 likes. We're not done yet. Get in the comments. If you're watching over, if you're listening over Apple, give me the five-star review, write a review about this conversation here because it's so critical and so central. And then I also want you to think about what we're trying to do here with the Fearless Movement and what we're gonna to try to hammer on April 15th right here in Nashville. Men have to understand what being a man means. We're going to define manhood. We're going to give you advice on how to be a better asset in your community, be a better asset to your parents, to your kids, to your community. To what We're going to do that April 15th right here in Nashville. We need you to come join us. Go to fearlessarmyrollcall.com. Delano will be speaking. I will be speaking. Pastor Anthony, Pastor Bobby, TJ Moe, all different angles we're going to be coming at this, trying to give men the information they need to represent themselves in a proper way and to represent God in a proper way. This issue with Colin Kaepernick, it's not just limited to Colin Kaepernick. There are too many young people who think their hairstyle and a tattoo and using the N-word mm. is a way to represent who you are. And, and this thing's not just specific to one race. Too many men, as we've talked about, the, the guy earlier this week when we played the video, the guy with seven kids and seven baby mamas, and he, 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 he thinks he's not responsible for that. We got to get men back on point, back on code, back on biblical code. And we're going to be doing that process here April 15th in Nashville. I need you here. It's not that expensive. Nashville's a great time. Hotels are, you know, a little bit, but it's worth it. Nashville's a good time. We want you to come here and join us. There's still opportunity and space for you to join us on Friday night for the cookout and on Saturday morning for the breakfast. And then we have all-day events planned for you Saturday at Rocket Town. Delano, back to you. The... the, the the, the woman, we didn't play the whole clip, but I, the woman interviewer mm -hmm. framed all her questions up around blackness and how he wanted to take pride in his blackness and he wanted to show his blackness. And, and, and it's a, it's, they're preaching racial idolatry to mm -hmm. specifically to black people. Specifically, racial idolatry. No other group that I'm aware of gets interviewed on TV, or has pressure, or, or maybe I'm wrong, do white kids have to be live up to their whiteness? Do they have to find their whiteness? Do Asian kids have to find their yellowness? Do Latino kids have to, I think Latinos maybe, maybe a little bit there under this pressure, but yeah. this seems so unique to us that we talk about it openly, that 
somehow finding your blackness is the most important priority. It's so secular. It's so it's it's a does anybody else dealing with this? I mean, I do think other groups have can have identity issues. And particularly if you're a kid who is from a particular ethnic group, but grows out outside of that, um, those, those issues can occur. And that's why sometimes they'll tell adoptive parents to try to do something to connect a person to to their ethnic roots. I think, as is often the case when it when it comes to, to black folk and particularly black Americans, not being able to point back to a land a specific named land that you left voluntarily, right, that sort of roots you and grounds you, um, makes that search for identity a lot more difficult. Now, a person could say, now a lot of black conservatives would say, well, I'm, I'm American, I'm black American. And, and I've, there's, there's enough there to cover and say that that, that is his own identity, right? The, a black American is different in, than, than somebody who grew up in Ghana or Nigeria, it's not the same. Now, yeah, we may have a similar skin color and we may, in fact, come from Ghana, Nigeria in terms of where, where you know, our tribal um, um, origin. But it's telling somebody, yeah, you know, I grew up, my parents listening to, to Otis Redding and the Spinners is not the same as saying, you know, I grew up listening to, you know, Fela Kuti or whoever. So uh, so those things are not the same. But but I, I will say this. I think identity is important. It is good to have a feeling of being grounded and rooted. Um, I just think that the identity that that Kaepernick and a lot of black folk sort of try to tap into is shallow. It's all cosmetic. It's all about aesthetics. It's all about, you know, again, did you wear Jordans? Do you have tats? Do you? And and what's even worse than that is now that ethnic identity is being tied more so to a uh, a number of political positions. As Nicole Hannah-Jones said, we know that it's racially black and then it's politically black. Um, and I think what you're seeing is is this level of shallowness sort of oozing out of Colin Kaepernick's pores. He's he's LARPing, Jason. In, in his Netflix special, when he came out and he got on the, the full length black leather, when he got the Afro and I said, this guy, this guy, he's, Colin Kaepernick is no different than the white people who do civil uh, war reenactments, you know, at Appomattox on the weekends. He's play, he's playing a role. He's putting on a costume. Now those people are doing it sometimes for historical purposes, sometimes for entertainment purposes. But he's doing this because this is what he thinks that blackness is. He thinks he's Shaft. Now the rest of us look at him and say, man, this guy he, he's down bad because he's <laughs> nobody dresses like this. Samuel L. Jackson don't even dress like this. But for him. This is his way of trying to reconnect to, to those roots. And, and I wish he had something deeper that, that he could go on. But, but the other thing, again, going back to, to being a parent, one of the things that I've, that I've noticed, and I'm not a historian per se, but just observing, every revolutionary is revolutionary until they come into power. And then it's status quo all the way down the line. I've never heard a speech from Fidel Castro translated in English where he says, after being president of Cuba for 25 years, I welcome the revolution, right? I want to be challenged by, you know, whoever to, to make Cuba a better country. 
He was a revolutionary up until the time he got into power. And then he said, look, I'm going to be president until the day that I die. And that's exactly the way it worked. Now, Colin Kaepernick is this, you know, anti-authority person as a kid until he has his own children. And he's going to want his children to listen to him and to heed his guidance. And when they're four years old and they, they drink up enough of his revolutionary theory and they say, nah, dad. Your parenting approach is just a, another form of oppression. And really what it's doing is, is mimicking the systems of white supremacy that you fight against when you're out there in the streets. So I'm not going to listen to you because I don't respect power structures and, and, and authority figures in this home in the same way you don't respect them on your team or with corporations. So sorry, Dad. At five years old, I'm emancipated. I'm a rebel. I do what I want. Now deal with it. He's going to turn to Nessa. And in their native Egyptian tongue, they're going to say, man, what did we do with this kid? And, not, and then he's going to realize where, where he went off the rails. And, and I hope that is a wake up call for him to say this is not the path. I, I want to go back to your black America, black American identity. Mm-hmm. I think it's more than enough. I think it's superior to any of these faraway lands that black people love to claim that they've never been to, have no intention of. And I'm gonna break it down this way. And Mm -hmm. again, because it's all in how you frame black American history, what you believe the narrative is. But there, I think there are some essential facts. I guess Colin Kaepernick may think, you know what, I'm from Dahomey, Africa. (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. So you from them mm. black people that captured and slow black people into slavery. Mm. I'd rather be from Buck Tussle, Mississippi, off a mm-hmm. slave plantation where I know didn't none of them black people sell me into slavery. So my mm. black American history is superior to this faraway history and this group of people that captured you and sold you to the French and the other Europeans and sold you into slavery and had everybody from around the world docking their boats to come <laughs> capture these Negroes that other Negroes had captured. I'd mm. rather be black American. It's mm. more than enough. We participated in making this country the envy of the world. And so mm-hmm. I, I just think we're telling the wrong history and we're fantasizing with movies like Wakanda or Black Panther. We're fantasizing mm-hmm. about these faraway lands that sold us into slavery. They had so little respect for each other that they captured and sold each other in slavery and enslaved each other. And, and, and that's where you want to be from? No, you don't. Or you'd move there now. Uh, so it, it's all a gimmick. And, and, mm. and black American history trumps all of that. But we're too uh, foolish, prideful, stupid to acknowledge what's obvious. That all the, because again, all the people from Dahomey, Africa, and, and wherever else they did the Woman King, many of them would love to move here and send kids to get educated here. The whole, we ain't sending them to Dahomey. It, it, it's, it's, so Kaepernick, 
in all of these young people, gratitude, God, yeah. and, and it's it's effed up how we got here, but but it's a blessing. I'm just sorry. It's a blessing. God, we, we're a special group of people that God transported here for a specific reason and purpose. And we just keep rejecting that and, and, and keep, oh, and, and, and literally those of us with any Christian faith, my God, if, if, if we weren't transported here, we wouldn't know about Jesus Christ. We wouldn't be Christians. We wouldn't, you know, we'd be, maybe we'd be getting it now as mercenaries and, uh, not mercenaries, missionaries Missionary. yeah. and others travel to Africa to, to, to teach us about it. But I, I sure love getting taught about it over here in some air conditioning uh, <laughs> with some DoorDash just a fingertip away. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, now, obviously, we none of us can say how history would have unfolded, right, if, if the transatlantic slave trade was not a thing. But even as you describe going back, you know, in, in, into Africa, that's 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 part of our history, too. And I think part one of the difficulties that human beings have is reckoning with difficult parts of our past. Now, to me, part of the way that you deal with that is to acknowledge that it happened, right? And then to understand that you are no better than the people back then. Because ultimately, and this, and this is where a biblical worldview and foundation come in, because ultimately, we all have the same common ancestor in Adam, and we all have the same problem of original sin. So you, you can't get away from it. So when I see people like Colin Kaepernick, I think he's, he... It, and, and it's not just him. I saw a clip, you know, with, with Henry Louis Gates the other day where he was telling Angela Davis, Angela Davis, the, the noted activist and, and, and communist and professor and, you know, Black Panther, whoever, that she was descended from people who came on the Mayflower. And boy, did that rock her world. But, but p- part of it, again, is this difficult in, in having an honest dealing with history. But the bigger problem is this, Jason. Any people that spend more time obsessing about the society that their ancestors inhabited than the one that their descendants will inherit is in big, big trouble. And in our community, 70% of our time is, 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 is focused looking in the rearview mirror. But the problem is the car is perpetually moving forward. And it's rare to hear me, he, to, to, for me to hear anybody in the black leadership class talk about what type of world, what type of society, what type of culture do we want to leave to our children? And to the extent that we do that, it's, I, I saw a clip the other day on BET, and I'm, I'm gonna go back and watch the show. They were talking about, you know, BET and black, and they were, this woman was talking about, um, well, if we get reparations, it may increase the marriage rates around among black folk. Now. I knew something had to be fishy because typically BET don't talk about marriage like that. So I said, okay, this is really about reparations. Now, I saw another clip of the woman. She says she's choosing to be single by choice. She's choosing to be single. She's very educated. I'm sure she's upwardly mobile. Given her grades, she looks like she's about mid-40s, early 50s. She's, She's advocating a spinster lifestyle. And I'm saying to myself, okay, you're gonna get reparations. Who's gonna get the money? Now we live in a community 
where our leaders advocate abortion, right? Where they tell us that it's good that 30% of black babies are killed in the womb and they're silent on homicide. The fact that 50% of young black males between 15 and 24 who pass away die by homicide. And, and, and they advocate for spinsterism. You could do bad all by yourself. You should choose peace over a partner. You don't need a man. You have your own money. Why bring somebody in? And I'm saying to myself, y'all so focus on, on generational wealth, but there's not gonna be any generations. Not with this attitude. So these are people who spend all of their time talking about the ancestors and they want everything from the ancestors other than the faith that got them through. They want they want to trade on the ancestors pain. They want to trade on on the ancestors survival through slavery and Jim Crow. They want to trade on the ancestors activism. You want to talk about identity issues. Try sending a middle class black kid off to college and see how quickly they end up in the black student union or, or the, you know, the, the, the communist society. Because all of our kids think that to truly be black, you have you have to fight against uh, oppression and, and, and marginalization. So we we know how to be losers very well, but we don't know how to win. This, this is a perpetual sort of Los Angeles Clipper spirit that's that's hovering over the black community. We know how to be underdogs, but we don't know how to be champions. And that's why these kids who go off, they have terrible identity crises. Jason, I don't know if you remember a couple years ago, University of Missouri, there was a big scandal about, you know, some kids were saying the N-word and they, you know, they, they, they drew a, a swastika and, and, and it was a, it was a big thing. Yes, yes. I, I wasn't sure that detail, but yes. And, and it was a, it was a big thing and, and sit-ins. And the black guy who was at the center of it, his father worked for a Fortune 500 company. He went to private schools his whole life. His dad probably made well over $500,000 a year. So he already feels alienated because he probably didn't grow up in a particularly black world. Maybe Jack and Jill. Maybe that's about it. Maybe he saw the Obamas on Martha's Vineyard. So what does he do? He puts on the costume of Dr. King so he can say, I'm operating in this civil rights legacy. But this is what happens where your identity is rooted in marginalization and oppression. And when it is, somebody who's way smarter than you knows how to turn that on you and sell you self-destruction if they call it liberation. And that's why you have college educated, primarily college educated black folk, especially women, who walk around saying, we need access to abortion to kill our seed because because that is liberation. And the pro-life movement, which would disproportionately save black babies, that's rooted in white supremacy. That's, that's the type of thinking that we have. And that's the type of thinking that you get when all you see yourself as is a victim. I wanna, I wanna there's a couple of interesting stories from that University of Missouri story. The, the other protagonist or central figure in that was the student body president, black mm. kid, that uh, he, he was a driving force behind that. He was gay, <laughs> the student body president, and was named homecoming king. Mm. But he said his experience at Missouri was filled with racism and oppression. 
he's student body president, <laughs> and he's the homecoming king. Right. But he's being mistreated because mm. he said that he was driving or walking somewhere and some townie drove by and shouted mm. the N-word at him. Mm. But he's gay, student body president, and homecoming king. And I guess his complaint was that he should have also been named homecoming queen as well. He wanted both titles. That was the oppression. I'm joking about that. But it was a non-binary award. That, yeah, that was, I was looking at this, I was like, hold on a minute, you student body president and, and you're homecoming king. You're living a good life. I mean, whatever issues that the University of Missouri has, and I know someone drove by and yelled something crazy at you, but Allegedly. that's not how the campus is treating you. But all of these kids, particularly the college-educated, come from good families. We, Because we, the only thing, well, and Kaepernick has found, he, he hit the, he's got all of it. He got the hair, he got the tats. And then he made himself a victim of the NFL because mm -hmm. th th those are the central qualifiers for blackhood, for blackness mm -hmm. is, for men. Do you got cornrows or dreads or some kind of funky hairstyle? How many tats you got? And then are you a victim? And now yeah. if you can check all three of those boxes, you're going. You throw a baby mama or two in there, and mm. oh my God, I mean, you 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 the you creme de la creme. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or the, the crip de la crip, yep. I'm with you. <laughs> Delano, uh, have a great weekend. Thank you, Jason. Uh, thank you for the conversation. Uh, appreciate it. We're going to hear from Steve Kim here in a second to get his take on this as well. Uh, we'll, we'll lighten it up, and maybe I won't be as angry when Steve Kim is here. Uh, I want 10,000 likes. I'm not joking on this show. we got to keep fighting this algorithm. If you're on Apple, I need five-star reviews. I need you to uh, write a little review of this particular show on Apple. But hit that five-star, get in the comments, uh, wherever you're at. 10,000 li likes. Uh, Steve Kim, next. It's my obligation, no hate, discrimination, raising up your hands for freedom. Atheists, the secular world, the culture uses our imperfection, our sins to take, shut up. You, you're, you can't stand on truth. And if all it was was imperfection, it eliminated us from standing on truth, this would be a very quiet place. I'm trying to be as loud as I can and as transparent as I can to try to inspire other men. We know you're imperfect, you know you're imperfect. God's grace and mercy, mercy gives you the right to stand on his truth and to speak that loudly into the culture, we, we have to do that. You can look around and say, these guys have taken over everything. They own the CDC, the NIH, they got the president. Is transgender surgery for children? Colleges today are nothing but leftist indoctrination centers working fully against the Bible. What's the alternative? So you're gonna stop fighting today and you're gonna let the government raise your kids? And you're gonna turn around and let them chop off your 12-year-old daughter's breasts and let them sterilize your son and tell him that he's a girl? And you're gonna let them make the Bible hate speech? You're the last line of defense here because nobody else is gonna do it and God's gonna walk with you. This is literally worth dying for. Absolutely. I'm telling you, so it's like everybody, that's a nice little metaphor. This is it.
If there's a hill to die on, this is it. The Overton window has been moved right in front of our children's bedrooms. And there are all types of people that are trying to climb up in the ladder. And every good father should be on his post so that when they peek their head up over the, the window sill, you kick the ladder back down, let them know, you, you move on to the other house because we're not playing that around here. Sometimes just standing up, just saying no, we're not going to do that. Not my marriage, not my kids, not my family, not my community, not my church, not my city. Just declaring that, that's victory enough. In prepping his disciples, he tells Peter, he's like, listen, Satan desires to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you. We're gonna face some ups and downs in life and we're not gonna always get it together. But if we stay on the path, if we stay chasing after, running after Jesus, running after his way, he's even praying for us. Now, I, I like it when you pray for me, Jason and TJ, I appreciate that, but to have Jesus pray for me, that make me feel pretty good. When you make it through this sifting process, go back and strengthen your brothers. So we all have a responsibility as men. Once he's delivered me through this, I have a responsibility to go back and bring some other folk out. You do a roll call to just let people know you're not alone, be confident in your positions, and we're gonna inspire you. We're gonna eat, fellowship, listen to some music. It's gonna be the first of many roll calls that we do. So we're looking for soldiers. We're gonna put on our best uh, recruiting pitches for soldiers. All right, welcome back. Time for some Korean Cosell. We'll see if he can uh, lighten me up here on uh, Colin Kaepernick and the animus. I, I am angry today, I gotta admit. I, I, I cannot stand Colin Kaepernick. We'll see if Steve, and, uh, if Steve Kim, the Korean Cosell, can lighten my mood. Steve, I, I find Colin Kaepernick uh, despicable. Mm. I, what he's doing to his parents here, it, it's everything I've thought about him ever since he started taking a knee. This guy doesn't care about anybody or anything. Uh, he has more concern about George Floyd and than the people that sacrificed everything to raise him. He's taking a dump on them. He, he would never be critical. I wonder if he thinks anything George Floyd did was problematic. When George Floyd was robbing women, I wonder if that was problematic. When he was popping fentanyl and sucking down fentanyl, I wonder if he thought that was problematic. He would never say it, but he'd certainly take a dump on his adoptive parents. Your thoughts on uh, Colin Kaepernick and his thoughts on his parents? You know, it's interesting about this individual who has really monetized his activism and he's gotten certain endorsement deals. And Jason, I'm, I'm sure you've seen this the last couple of months, those really big caps, those oversized lids. That should be, <laughs> he should be the spokesperson. Big cap, pernick. I, I mean, because he truly is an all-pro at grifting and he's committing what I think is the worst sin of all the sin of ingratitude on, on a serious note. And I just think it's interesting that as I'm looking at some of these pictures of him growing up with that adoptive family, 
the thing that really struck me, Jason, he actually looks very happy. Got a smile on his face. Looks like the all-American kid growing up in a version of suburbia uh, out there in that area. Looks very content. Doesn't look like he's wanting really all too much. Probably got the Game Boy for Christmas, Nintendo, when that went out of style. And this is how much he leaned into his whiteness. He actually played baseball. I mean, if you want to talk about being white in modern society and not leaning into your black side, in the 2000s, it's playing baseball. Because let's face it, Jason, the inner cities, they don't play baseball anymore. So that's the thing that I thought of. And even leading into the Super Bowl in New Orleans, the Harbaugh brothers were, were a big story. I happened to see a picture, and I guess the families were invited one day that with that same family, he was on the field at the Superdome before that game happily smiling. That It wasn't an issue with them being involved or even being publicly displayed. So that's the thing, sin of ingratitude. That's what I think of when I think of that guy. What If you had to speculate, what do you think his parents think? What, what I mean, they are caught between mm. a rock. They can't say anything. Yeah. Anything they say can and will be used against them in the court of public opinion. Yeah, look, they are in a catch-22. They're between a rock and a hard place. Because if they say anything, you know, look, I'm surprised he didn't call them colonials or conquerors or whatever, whatever the term is for this week, right? But I, I just find it interesting that Colin Kaepernick, you can argue, was a beneficiary of, well, white privilege. Two-parent home, three square meals, little league dues were all paid for, got to go to summer camp. Probably got to watch all the movies. Probably had a nice VCR or a DVD player back then. Uh, I just find it amazing that he literally ran out of people to criminalize or extort, and now he turns on his parents. And I also think there's a point being made on Twitter, which I think is very, very cogent. Wearing cornrows and then invoking like Allen Iverson, that that's his vision of blackness. That it's not having another haircut or just behaving well, but think about the negative stereotypes that he's invoking and saying, well, I wanted to reach into my blackness as if somehow his vision of it is what he thinks it is. I'm just telling you, it, it will, it, if it was anyone else saying it, especially a white person, they, they'd be asked one thing. Well, wait a minute. Why is that your vision of blackness? Steve, do you ever, did you ever, obviously not at your age now, what, what are you, 32? But did you ever at any time think about, I got to embrace my Asian-ness or yellow skin or wh whatever color skin, you, I, I don't know, olive, whatever. Was that ever a thought? Yeah. Every time I got one of my mediocre report cards, I'd have to show to my parents. I, I did say to myself, ah, oh, gee, <laughs> I better get better grades here. <laughs> I want to have a pair of pissed off crouching tiger parents. And quite frankly, it got very <laughs> uncomfortable as I brought home too many B's and once in a while a C. But to us, this is the thing that's interesting about the assimilation of Asian Americans, because now they call us white adjacent, right? That's the new liberal term. We're just trying to live our lives in whatever our version of the American dream was, whether that's owning a liquor store or a dry cleaner or whatever small business we had. But it was never really forced upon us to look back to the motherland 
Like there, there was never a time that in my, even in my most rebellious time as a youth, I never thought about raising my fist or, you know, having one chopstick up in the air and saying, you know what, I need to go back to the 38th parallel. Like it, it, it does, it's not forced upon us. And, and there's not this victimology that is shoved down our throats. And again, I want to say, we have to make it clear, our history in this country, and look, I was an immigrant that came when I was a toddler in the 70s. So it's a little bit different. Uh, everyone's immigrant experience is a little bit different, as is the American experience. But from a standpoint of the general large-scale media, Asian people were never really given the messaging of, you are a victim, you are bound to fail, and there's a systemic rot that's going to victimize you. So we just kind of live as Americans. I mean, first and foremost, Jason, I make it very clear. Uh, I am not Korean. I am not going back to Seoul or Pusan anytime soon. I'm going to live and die in this country. I actually love America. So when people say, hey, are you Korean? I say first and foremost, no, no, no. I'm an American Korean. I never say I'm a Korean American. Mm. So should I call you the American Cosell rather than the Korean Cosell? Is, no, 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 have no, we no, mistagged no, you? No, 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 no. There's no alliteration. There's no alliteration there. Come on. Amer American. Yeah, we already had American Cosell. His name was Howard. So let's go with Korean Cosell. Yeah. All right. So we're, we're still good there. Hey, uh, speaking of Asians, uh, let's transition, talk a little Tiger Woods. Well, he's Copland Asian. Tiger Woods is back in the news and perhaps back in the gossip sheets. His latest girlfriend, Erica Newman, I believe is her name. She's 39 Newman. years old. He's having a little problems getting her out of the house. Uh, sounds like she's claiming he, he tricked her. She, he, he tricked her into going on a vacation. When she came back, all of her stuff was cleaned out. She wants $30 million in a lawsuit. Uh, she signed some non-disclosure agreement. The only way to get out of the non-disclosure agreement is if it, in some way, you can argue that you were sexually harassed or abused. And so she's got both guns pointed at Tiger Woods. And this story, you know, Tiger's already had some problems, obviously, with his first wife and being involved in scandal and that, that, that if you remember, his play fell apart after the Thanksgiving deal. He couldn't handle it mentally being embarrassed. This, I, I everybody, Tiger Woods is my favorite athlete. I've, I've, it used to be Magic Johnson. Tiger surpassed him. Magic is now number two. But as a kid growing up, I loved Magic Johnson. But, but Tiger Woods, at the height of his golf career, what it did for me and my dad and me and my dad's conversation. Tiger Woods is my guy. Love him to death. I have a bias. I am capable of talking about him objectively. Uh, I, I, I just, I, I feel sorry for Tiger because I think it's given his history and how he was shamed. Dating and given his wealth and all that, dating very rough for this guy. He, he needs these non-disclosure agreements because, you know, the, the gossip rags and TMZ are always out to get him. Uh, do you have sympathy for Tiger in this situation? I kind of, I mean, 30 million. I mean, like, he's going to have to ask himself, is it cheaper to keep her? But God, this is the thing, though. <laughs> 
What he did and the way he wanted to put her on waivers, it's kind of a D move. At least be a gentleman about it. And this is why he's always getting outed. Look, say what you want about Derek Jeter. He had an impressive Hall of Fame off-the-field lineup, and you never heard a thing. You know why? Because he was generally a very nice guy. He acted like a gentleman. Same thing with Magic. We know how Magic ended up in his position, but no one ever came out against him. You know why? Because generally, it seemed like he was very decent and nice. Tiger does not seem nice. When I actually heard back when that thing with his first wife and all that stuff happened Thanksgiving weekend, I mean, you're literally a billionaire and you're flying out your side pieces on Southwest. Come on. <laughs> you could not. I mean, forget about getting first class. You could not just hook them up with a private jet and show them a little. And then he's like giving them for lunch, a give a, a going away lunch. Subway. Subway. Really? See, this is where Tiger gets himself in trouble, <laughs> that he is socially awkward. He really I mean, you couldn't even get Quiznos because Quiznos is pretty good now. Here's the solution. I am not here to rip or castigate. I'm here to help. He needs to go back to a show you did about five weeks ago, and I think it's clear he can afford it. The crouching tiger, Woods, he needs to become a passport, bro. That's it. That's the thing. You talked about it. You did a whole show on it. So someone out there is close with Eldrick. I can send you a link. Send it over to Woods. You can go to Columbia, Medellin, wherever. Um, be careful, be very respectful of the locals no, and that tiger. Don't act like yourself. Actually try to be a regular, nice human being. Cause I don't want you to get stabbed and 50 pieces sent back. But anyway, he needs to become a passport, bro. That's the solution. Forget the relationships. Just do you, but no, don't do you over there, tiger. That's the thing. I think what has gotten tiger into trouble is what you alluded to. Tiger's cheap and he yeah. may be too cheap to be a passport, bro, because mm. you're right. I, I don't think if if he had treated these women with respect and the right. generosity of a billionaire, I don't think they would have sold him out as quickly as they did. Rachel Ucatel, I think at one time had been one of his best friends and had, you know, basically been his liaison around Vegas or whatever. And I think I read somewhere where she needed 500 bucks and Tiger wouldn't give it to her. <laughs> yeah. And, and think about that. Jason. That's like a $20 bill to Tiger. That 500 bucks probably cost him millions. I, yes. I mean, like, like, let me give you an example. Uh, there's a monthly dinner that we have among some boxing friends, trainers, fighters, promoters, people in the sport at Phil Trainees in Long Beach. By the way, big fans of yours up there. So anyway, and we know we're going to be regulars. So when it comes time to tip, and I know I need to come back, we're not just giving. I make sure everyone's giving an extra 10 to $20 per head. Because you know why? Because quite frankly, I want to know what's in my next <laughs> meal. I want to be treated well. And that's the downfall of Tiger Woods. You said it. He's cheap. In this particular case, though, this woman's looking for $30 million. $30 million she's suing for. They were boyfriend and girlfriend for five or six years. Does being boyfriend and girlfriend really require a $30 million settlement? I mean, does yeah. it require a $10 million settlement? Well, $5 million? Jason, I mean, Jason, I can on. see, oh, you need first and last month's rent at your new apartment? Here's 
you know, $2,400 or $3,000. I got your first and last month's rent. But millions? I don't know, man. Yeah, I, Jason, the rumor is that she's being represented by Lamar Jackson's mother. But look, you, you know what they say in negotiating? <laughs> Aim high. <laughs> Aim high and come down to a more reasonable price. That's what I think is going on here. Well, and it's funny. You mentioned uh, Lamar Jackson's mother, but what Tiger really needs to be careful of, you know who's sniffing around this deal, is Gloria Allred. Uh-oh. And once Gloria Uh-oh. Allred gets involved, oh my God. I know the she's old, ben but... Crump. The female Ben Crump. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, Tiger. yeah, yeah. She's break out Brandy Crump. Yeah, Brandy yeah. Crump gets involved, and and the next thing you know, that thirty million is going to turn into a hundred million. Or Tiger, all these cell phone videos and all this other stuff is going to come out. And so, in in more on a more serious note, though, honestly, if she's been living with you, and she's been living your lifestyle, that that. And so she's grown accustomed to that. She was very involved with his kids and all that. There is some sort of like, okay, I need you out of here. And I'm sure they've been having that debate. And and she's just like, okay, but, you know, what am I going to do, Tiger? I put my life on hold for you, your kids. You know, not that she had much of a career. I think she was a a restaurant uh, manager or something like that for Tiger Woods. But who knows? Maybe she was making 100K, uh, managing one of his restaurants. Maybe she's making 150K. Who knows? Give her 300K, Tiger. Well, Jason, this is a legal issue. I I don't even know if that alone constitutes anything like a common law marriage. But it it harkens back to the great scene in Waiting to Exhale when Angela Bassett's husband, who was a doctor, said, hey, I'm leaving you for a Becky Beckington. And Miss Bassett just gets the car, all his clothes, all his ties, all his shoes, go- and she just burns it up, right? And I'm, and I'm thinking right now, okay, you know what? Maybe that guy got off cheap. Maybe that guy got off cheap. But again, this is where Tiger, if he just would have acted like a regular human being and say, look, honey, it's not you. It's me. And then write a nice little check, a little going away present. I think he'd be fine. But again, Tiger, Tiger didn't go crazy. Tiger went Tiger. Famous words from Chris Rock. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about stuff that could blow up in my face. I'm thinking about, I got a, a buddy out in Vegas named Ron. I wonder if he's watching or listening to this. Because uh, I, <laughs> I can remember being in Vegas. Uh-oh. And I'm living oh, in man. L.A. at the time. <laughs> oh, boy. And, and <laughs> this, this woman's living with me. And she's gone mm-hmm. off the rails. And, oh, boy. And she's making some threats. And, oh, and it's got, it's, it's, I'm telling you, it was like midnight in Vegas. And I was like, dude, I got to go. I got to pack her stuff up out of here and put, I got to beat her back to L.A. We leave L.A. <laughs> immediately, driving like a bat out of hell. And by, I'd say, 6 o'clock that morning, all of her stuff was packed up in her car in my oh. parking garage. I would had the locks changed the whole night. <laughs> Sure, Ron's oh gonna see this. <laughs> that sounds like an R. Yeah, Kelly video. It t- really does. Oh yeah, my god! This was a long time ago, yeah. and this is why I left LA, and this is why I've gotten closer to God. Because uh, trust me, I needed it. Uh, <laughs> uh, I want to s- switch up another topic. Uh, Patrick Ewing 
oh. got let go at Georgetown. He got six years. <laughs> he got six years, and it was probably after year two or three. Let me go. <laughs> let me go check his record at, at Georgetown. But uh, this was long overdue. Yeah, seventy-five and one hundred nine. I think is his career record. Uh, but this is long overdue. Patrick getting canned. Uh, your th- and remember, Patrick Ewing. <laughs> who Patrick Ewing was? Oh, this is awesome. He was the Eric B. Enemy of the NBA. Oh, Everybody was irate <laughs> that Patrick Ewing couldn't get an NBA head coaching job, and he went and further, further destroyed uh, Georgetown basketball. But uh, yeah, Patrick went 15 and 15, 19 and 14, 15 and 17, 13 and 13, six and 25, seven and 25. And now he's done at Georgetown. Your thoughts? Uh, in the immortal words of Boney T, this is worse than when the fat boys broke up. As someone who <laughs> wanted this to work, who loved Georgetown hoops in the 80s, I wanted it to work. But it, it just it goes to show you that the Georgetown brand is no longer what it was. And look, 80% of that job is talent acquisition. And if you cannot recruit or get that one player, it's going to be difficult. And look, he probably did get another year or two based on his lineage. But it really makes me sad what has happened to number one, the Big East, and overall Georgetown. I mean, the conference tournaments are going on today as we speak. Jason, I won't be watching a single millisecond of it. And it it just harkened back a couple things. From about 1984 till about 1996 when Ray Allen and – who was it? Allen Iverson put on a great duel. I thought the Big East tournament was as good as any sports tournament in America at the Madison Square Garden. Now it's just kind of like a shell of itself. As for Georgetown, it's really sad that I don't think they'll ever replicate that success that they had with John Thompson. And look, I'm not even talking about going to three Final Fours in a four-year stretch and winning it once. It's just really sad. And I don't know who they get. I mean, there's actually talk from someone, and I don't know how serious it is. And you know what? I would throw away his baggage. I'd say I don't even care because if we want to be a winning organization, I would roll the dice on Rick Patino. Seriously, Rick Patino. You don't hmm, like that idea. That's an interesting. You got to get you're, you're interesting. Yeah. That's. Are they saying that that's even a possibility? I, I saw some tweet where they said these are the names being mentioned slash rumored. And I, you need to make a splash. You need a big name. And look, you could say what you want about Patino. I get it. But the man knows how to win. He's one of the elite coaches that's ever been in college basketball. And, and, and I, I believe Georgetown has to get away from the Georgetown tree, Right. Because if you only think about it, it went from Thompson to Craig Escherich, who's a longtime assistant. Then it was John Thompson the third, and then in Ewing. It, it, it kind of reminds me of Alabama football when they went through a 20-year malaise post Bear Bryant, where everyone had to have played for Bear Bryant, right? If you didn't come from that Alabama Crimson Tide Bear Bryant tree, they didn't want to hire you. Well, Nick Saban's worked out pretty well. So if Georgetown wants to get back to relevance. They need a guy like Patino, in my view. I think that would be a great hire. 
Steve, we're going to end the show on a curveball and a sad yeah. note. I, I just saw this news. Uh, Otis Taylor, yes. Chiefs wide receiver, uh, legendary Chiefs wide receiver, star of their first Super Bowl team, Lenny Dawson's go-to wide receiver, has passed away. Mm. I was friends with Otis Taylor during my time in Kansas City. Uh, I, the reason I'm bringing this up, because it's just, it's long overdue, and I don't want to, Otis had been bedridden for more than a decade, and uh, it was uncomfortable, his, his continued existence, uh, basically as a vegetable, and so I, I, I'm, I'm thankful that he's at peace with God and home. Otis was a, people treated me wonderfully when I moved to Kansas City in 1994. My mother moved there in 1984 and she had met him, but I, I, didn't, I didn't know Otis Taylor until I had moved there until 1994. One of the first people to prefer me, we used to have breakfast at Miss Maxine's. Uh, great guy, great football player, in my view, worthy of the Hall of Fame. Yes. Uh, they, they never got him in the Hall of Fame, but certainly worthy. He was a finalist in the seniors deal, didn't make it through this past year. But Lynn Dawson and, and Otis Taylor basically dying in the same time frame uh, seems kind of appropriate. But I, I'm, I'm mostly happy that Otis has been allowed to pass. You have any, I know we we're both yeah. too young to have seen him play, but you have any memories of Otis? Yeah, I mean, certainly through NFL films and being a little bit of a historian with Otis Taylor, long before there was uh, the Megatron Calvin Johnson, there was him and Harold Carmichael, these big-bodied, freakishly tall, long athletes. And there's that famous Super Bowl catch where he caught the hitch and he broke a tackle. It went like 50 yards, and that ended the game, basically. And for years, I thought Mr. Taylor was in the Hall of Fame based on the impact that he made. And I believe he worked for the Chiefs organization for years to come. And um, look, at, at the end of the day, when situations like this, I am reminded of my own father's passing back in 2016, that the last time I saw my father, the last four years of his life were very difficult after he had a stroke. And I remember the last couple of times that I saw him, I actually said to myself, for his own sake, I hope he can die peacefully and relatively soon because it became very tough to actually see him in that state. And the last time I visited him, I remember walking out of that convalescent hospital thinking to myself, I've just seen my father for the last time. Something I'll never forget, I actually got the message past midnight on a Tuesday night after I'd come back from covering a fight saying that my father had passed away. And it's something that you never forget. And Otis Taylor, to me, will represent a generation of players through NFL films that I grew up loving and developing my passion for football because of the great contributions he made on the field. Steve, have a great weekend. We'll talk to you next week. Uh, let's play tomorrow, and we'll see you next week. Freedom, looking for a breakout, feeling like a
spinning like, like freedom Came like a fighter, striking like a ladder Making all this moves for freedom I want freedom No negotiation, my sister, no relation We all just wanna have freedom Sitting on the corner, never been alone I'm breaking my back for freedom Bless, we are living, get back We are receiving all the seeds when we all wanna be free We want freedom 